And we are currently in a series going through the letters of John. But rather than have you turn to 1 John, uh, at least yet, which is where we're at this morning, I'm going to have you turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to go to gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. One of the great advantages of uh, the study that we're doing in the letters of John is that before John wrote these letters, letters to individual leaders and churches, um, we have his writing on the life and the story and the impact of Jesus. And so we get this really unique opportunity to see John tell us the story of Jesus and then to walk through with churches and with leaders how the story of Jesus impacts what we do as God's people. And so we can kind of bounce back and forth between the Gospel of John and the letters of John and get this really unique perspective that we don't get anywhere else in the New Testament. And we're going to look at a story, at least to begin this morning, that I think had a profound impact on John and the way he taught in his letters. And so let's jump in. John chapter 4. We're not going to cover the whole story. We're just going to cover a part of the story. And a part of the story that's taking place in John 4 is Jesus is having an interaction with a woman of Samaria. And there's a lot of details that go into that that we're not going to talk about today just because that's not our main passage, our main focus for this morning. Uh, But Jesus is having this interaction with this woman. She's asking him some questions. Uh, He's providing some insight and some answers. And then at one point, she realizes Jesus is no ordinary man, and he is no ordinary teacher. Jesus knows things that no one else would know. Jesus has insight into things that nobody else has insight to. And so we're jumping sort of mid-conversation in verse 19. And so during this interaction, this is what happens Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's saying that they're in the region of Samaria, which is north of Judea, north of Jerusalem. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what is true worship? What kind of worship does God desire from us? You know, for thousands of years, people have been discussing and even debating this. I mean, 2,000 years ago, this woman is saying, hey, there's some disagreements about the location where worship should take place. And unfortunately, we still have those kind of discussions. Should it happen in a home at house church or should it happen in a really large auditorium? Which one's better? Which one's more authentic? Which one's more pure? Or should uh, the music that we sing, should it be simple and basic and more acoustic? Or 
Should it be rehearsed and refined and highly skilled? Which one's better? Which one's more authentic? Which one's more pure? As a whole, when we get together, should it be really laid back? Should you be guessing at what time we're going to end, depending on how I feel or the worship leaders feel? Or should it be highly structured down to the very minute? Should it be high church or low church? Now, some of you are familiar with those terms, and some of you may not be. Those terms aren't used in a judgmental fashion. They're actually technical terms to describe uh, how a church conducts itself. A, a high church would be one that relies on a lot of liturgy. There's a lot of um, reciting back and forth, saying of creeds. It's very structured. The clergy will wear special uniforms or accoutrements or low church where uh, those things aren't as, as held in such high esteem, those traditions and the structure and the liturgy, liturgy, literally, <laughs> that one got me tongue-tied. Which one's better? Which one's more pure? Should we sing new songs or old songs? Should the sermons be based on a topic or they, should they be expository based on a certain passage of the Bible? What is it that God desires from us? Which worship is better? Which one's more pure? We have these debates even today. And while you can have all of your personal preferences on all the things I mentioned, none of those are right or wrong. None of those in and of themselves are better or more pure. Neither one of them are more or less authentic when done in the right manner, and Jesus defines the right manner for us when they're done in truth and in spirit. Jesus said the hour is coming and has now come when what the Father desires is those who will worship in truth and in spirit. I think this story had an impact on John. We're going to see it come out as he's writing his first letter. And so turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, while you're turning there, just a reminder of what we're doing in this series and how we're approaching these letters. John has a rhythm or a style that he likes to use. Um, there's sort of a threefold structure to the way he writes. Whether he did it on purpose or this just naturally came out of him, I don't know. But that's how we're studying the letters and how we're approaching these sermons. And so John will begin by laying a foundational doctrine or truth uh, that he wants his, his readers to be reminded of or to learn. And once he lays that foundational doctrine or truth, he's then going to move on to obedient living. How does that truth impact the way we live our lives in the here and the now? How does it impact us as individuals? How would it impact us as a church? And then he will move into a sort of impassioned encouragement to let his readers know this truth and this way of living, this is how it's going to set you apart from the world. And though that may be difficult, here's why it's a good thing. And then he will start this rotation again. And so this morning, we are in the foundational doctrine or foundational truth of this 
sort of routine or rhythm that John has. That's the section that we're entering into when we look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And what I'd love to do is I'm just going to read uh, through those verses, and then we'll break it down into smaller chunks to really examine and talk through. And so here it is. John says this, children, if you remember from last week, that's not a derogatory term. That's him addressing the entire church. And when you're an old pastor, you can say those kinds of things. Uh, I have gray in my beard, but I'm not old enough to call all of you children yet. So I won't do it. But uh, this is what John does. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been appointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So it was quite a bit to, to take all in. So let's just slow it down a little bit and look at just a couple verses at a time. And we'll just go back to verse 18. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I don't know if you remember or if you caught it, but Jesus used this same kind of language when he was talking with the woman in Samaria. Uh, we can look quickly back at that. Jesus says to her one, at one point, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. And then he said later, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For John, this term, hour, um, holds significant meaning. He actually uses a lot. We'll, we'll look at just a couple other instances where um, he records uh, Jesus using those very words. And for John, hour does not mean hour in the same way that you and I mean it. For John, and the way he talks about it, and the way he understood Jesus to talk about it, an hour is a season. It's a significant appointed time. Just as Jesus said, hey, there was an hour when it mattered where you worship. But that hour has passed and a new hour has come. That doesn't mean there was a physical hour in a week or in history where it mattered and then it didn't matter, but rather there was a season, there was an appointed time when that mattered 
that appointed time is gone and a new appointed time has come. Look how else Jesus uses this term when he is speaking. At his very first miracle in John chapter 2, when a wedding party runs out of wine, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's always baffled me what his mom expected him to do about it at that moment. I mean, clearly she knew Jesus would take care of it, but uh, given that he hadn't done any public miracles yet, um, that he, she would come to him with this request has always intrigued me. But she comes to him and says, hey, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, because it's mom, his mom, he's going to do something about it. He's going to take care of the problem. But he wants to make sure that everyone there listening knows that, hey, my hour, my appointed time, the purpose for me coming, the great season of my life and ministry is not about this. It's not just to do tricks like this. That's not why I'm here. But... When Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time, when it's entering into the final week of his life, notice what he does say in chapter 12. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus said this almost a week before he would die. So when he said the hour has come, he didn't mean this is the hour I die. This is the hour that I begin my passion. No, what he meant was we have entered into a new special appointed season. He had just entered into Jerusalem. We had just had what we celebrate in Palm Sunday, that that entrance where people laid down their coats and palm branches and he rode a donkey into Jerusalem as they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. He knew it was the final week of his life and he knew and had been telling the disciples, when I go to Jerusalem, I go to die. And so once he entered Jerusalem, he said the hour is here. Not the hour like we mean it on a watch, but the appointed time, the appointed season. And so in John, in his letter, when he says, It is the last hour. He does not necessarily mean Jesus is returning today or tomorrow, but rather we have entered into that final season, that final appointed time. Because the next stage of history is when Jesus returns to finish what he started, to consummate all things. We are in that last season. I don't know how long that last season will last. But we're in the final season because there's no other stage. There's no next step to God's redemptive plan after what we're in until Jesus returns. And so when he says we're in the last hour, he doesn't necessarily mean it's happening today, though I think the New Testament clearly teaches it could happen at any day, at any moment. But he's saying we are in the final season, the final season of God's redemptive plan before he comes back to finish what he started. He says, listen, we're in the last hour, as you've heard, because the Antichrist is not only coming, but we see the Antichrist here. We'll talk about that 
more in just a minute. So let's move on to verses 19 through 21. Speaking of these, quote, antichrists, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. To define what these antichrists are, we'll see in just a minute. But here, John makes a special point to define two things that set us apart, that make us distinct. Notice what he says here. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Speaking of the truth, he later says, you know it. So there are two defining characteristics that distinguish us from them. Those who are not a part of us or a part of God's community and God's family. And it's this anointing and the truth. The anointing and the truth are what set us apart, what make us distinct. And over the next few verses, John's going to help clarify what he means by those terms. Look in verse 21. Or excuse me, we'll, we'll jump down to verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so there are two key defining characteristics that distinguish us. And the first is the truth. The truth that Jesus is the Christ. That's one of the things that makes us different or distinct is a knowledge and a belief and a devotion to that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, God's anointed one come to carry out his will, to provide a solution to the problem of sin. And what is an antichrist? This is actually a term John made up. It's not, it's not anywhere in the New Testament except in John's writings. And we sometimes within church culture, use Antichrist as a title, but for John, it's more of a category. It's anyone opposed to who Jesus is and was, someone who would deny that Jesus was the Christ. That's Antichrist. And so what makes us unique, what defines us and makes us distinct is that we know and believe and adhere to and are devoted to the truth. The truth that Jesus is the Christ. Let's go on to the next verses. Verses 24. There we go. He says this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But it, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So here, John brings up this idea of anointing again. Earlier, when he said there are two things that make you distinct, it was the anointing of the Holy One and the truth. Those were the two things. And as John further clarifies what he means, I think what he's describing for us is the truth and the spirit. Here's why I say that. One, as we see repeatedly in the life of Jesus, that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. But look at the role that the Spirit's going to play or that this anointing is going to play in our lives. That it's going to teach us that we're going to abide in him and he is going to abide in us. Isn't that exactly what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit? This is exactly what John repeated in his own gospel about what Jesus taught about the Spirit. Look at John chapter 16, verse 7. If you're in the Bible app, it's just the next verse laid out for you. Uh, if you have not been a part of our Sunday night Bible study, this has been our key verse through the study. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so we've been uh, using a book um, called Jesus Continued uh, as sort of a guide for our study and discussion on Sunday nights. And the tagline of that book is the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to mess it up now because I'm trying to quote it. But um, it's the spirit inside of you is better than the Jesus beside you which is sort of provoking. We asked this question in our Sunday Night Bible study on the first week of, if you had the choice between the spirit inside of you or Jesus beside you, what would you choose? My guess is many of us, our default answer is I would choose the Jesus beside me. That's more tangible. But Jesus said, it is to your advantage if I leave, because if I leave, then I send the helper. Or as he defines later in this, in this discussion, the helper is the Holy Spirit. It is to your advantage that I leave so you get the Holy Spirit. That is to your advantage. It is better for you if you have the Spirit inside of you than for me to remain here. So that has sort of been our key verse as we've uh, talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you have not been a part of that study, uh, you can still join. Uh, you don't have to read the book, though we would encourage it. And so if you want to join us, even this Sunday night uh, at 630, we'll continue our study and our discussion together uh, about the Holy Spirit and the role the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. But um, in, in talking about the Holy Spirit and this helper that Jesus said, it would be better if I leave so I can send him to you. He says this in just a couple verses later. He said, telling his disciples, I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so this helper or this spirit of truth or the Holy Spirit is going to come and speak truth 
to us. Jesus said just previously in John chapter 14, which I know we're jumping back a couple chapters, but it's all the same conversation. John 13 through 17 all happen in one sitting. And in John 14, Jesus said these things, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's exactly what John says the anointing from the Holy One is going to do. It's the anointing from the Holy One who will teach us, who will remind us of the truth. And so just as Jesus said, what God desires, it's not a location, it's not a style, it's not a particular structure or lack thereof. What God desires is those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And then John, writing to these Christians in the first century, the late first century, says, this is what will make you distinct. This is what will set you apart from those who are not a part of us. It's the spirit and the truth. It's the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And it's the spirit, it's his anointing that will guide you into all truth. That's what makes you distinct, and it's that that the Father desires from us into worship. The truth is what keeps us on track. As a people, as individuals, as we worship together, and it's the Spirit that brings life and empowerment. It's the Spirit that abides in us and gives us the ability to abide in Him. Now, we said earlier that uh, this morning's passage um, was within that category of foundational doctrine or truth. And next week, uh, John is going to dive into obedient living. How does this truth, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, and that we have the Spirit's anointing, we have the Spirit abiding in us, how does that truth impact how we live? So that's what we're going to cover next week. But as we close this morning, John closes with this idea that just as the Spirit abides in us, we abide in Him. It's when we press into the truth, when we press into the Spirit that the Lord has given us, that we're enabled to live out the gospel. That the gospel of what Jesus came to do, what he accomplished on the cross and in the empty grave, that lives itself out in us when we press into the truth and we press into the spirit that lives in you. The spirit that Jesus said was to your advantage if I leave so I can give him to you. Because it's that spirit that gives us the power and the ability to abide in the truth and to abide in him. Let's pray.
Lord, we come to you just in humility this morning. In humility at the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, that you came to be the anointed one. Who came to establish an eternal throne. To bring your kingdom here on earth. To allow us to be a part of it. We're humbled, Jesus, that you came not to be served, but to serve. To give your life as a ransom for many. So that in you we could have that eternal life that John talked about. And so this morning we respond to you in in spirit and in truth. Our worship, bathed and drowned in spirit and in truth. That we declare that you are the Christ. That we acknowledge the spirit that lives within us, that empowers us to live out these truths. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed. We're going to enter into a time of response. And this morning, as we sing, the song we're going to to sing in response is titled, He Will Hold Me Fast. And here's the beauty of this song. That in the end, it's Jesus that holds us close, not the other way around. That us abiding in him is really a work he does in us and on our behalf, not something that we have to muster up. And so even in the days when we don't do a very good job of acknowledging the truth, even in the days when we do not do a good job of acknowledging the spirit that's within us, when we do not tap into the power of the spirit at work within us, he continues to hold us fast. He doesn't let us go. We are going to sing and celebrate that truth this morning. It is in that truth that we worship. And as we go to the table to take of the cup and the bread, we go to remind ourselves and to celebrate that when he went to the cross, he did it for us. He held us fast. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so when you sing those words and you take of the cup and the bread, be reminded that the spirit at work in you is doing something for you that you can't do for yourself. That even on your low days, he continues to hold you fast. That he continues to abide in you, live in you. And that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we get to come before you and to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, may our worship always be categorized as worship that is in spirit and truth. That is founded on the truth that you are the Christ, that you died and rose for us, that we have eternal life in you. And that it would be characterized by the spirit being at work alive and power in us. 
that the anointing you have given to us would shine through as we worship you. Lord, we love you. And we come before you in worship, in spirit, and in truth.